Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb, working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, we are going to be talking about women and capitalism. Vicky Price is an economist who has written a fresh and timely reminder that although the hashtag MeToo movement has been usually important, women will never be equal while economic inequality remains. Price is urgently calling for feminists to focus attention on the pressing issue of the pay gap, the glass ceiling and all the obstacles there are to women working at all. She talked to Cathy Sheridan later in the episode about her new book, Women versus Capitalism, and about her experiences as a mother in one workplace. Everyone was getting in very, very early, and I would walk in around 9.30, and, and my boss called me in and said, well, it's all going really well, um, but, you know, it's been noticed that you come in rather late. Can you not perhaps, you know, start coming in a little bit earlier like everybody else? And I said, I have to take my children to school in the morning first thing. So I can't, but you know I stay in until 10 or 11 at night because I don't have a problem on, you know, when they get back if someone is doing that job for me. Um, and, uh, and it all seems to be working fine. And, and my boss hadn't realized, which is extraordinary because, of course, it was an American firm and he was actually Canadian. They hadn't asked me anything about children. I uh, was so impressed that I had children and also so shocked that, I, you know, he had asked me that. Oh, and and offended me, or he thought he offended me. Uh, that all went swimmingly, uh, you know. After that, it was really in a very good relationship. We had already one, and and he was very apologetic. So I carried on coming in at nine thirty in the morning, which was brilliant. That's coming later on. But first of all, I wanted to just keep you up to date, as I'm sure you are, in the latest uh, in the Sarah Everard story. This week, former Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins is to be sentenced for the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard, whom he lured off the street by abusing his powers and position as a police officer. This week, we found out exactly how Cousins, who was 48, used his police warrant card and handcuffs to lure Everard off the street before strangling her with his police belt and burning her body. The court heard all of that this week and video footage released on Wednesday showed Cousins, who was then a serving Metropolitan Police Officer in London, staging a false arrest of Everard as she returned from a friend's house in South London in March during a period of coronavirus lockdown measures. Lord Justice Fulford is the judge who's going to decide on the length of Cousins' sentence on Thursday today uh, in the Old Bailey in central London. And it was the week that we heard the full details of of the crimes um, and the prosecution said the crimes were so serious 
involving the abuse of his position and trust as a police officer that they would merit him being sentenced to a whole life tariff. And the defence is going to today argue against Cousins receiving a whole life tariff for the ordeal he afflicted on Everard, which is a sentence reserved for the very worst offenders, which I think a lot of people would say he definitely deserves. He handcuffed her in the back seat of the car and that was the start of her lengthy ordeal, including an 80 mile journey to Kent while detained, which was to lead to her rape first and then her murder. And Tom Little QC told the Old Bailey at some point fairly soon after driving from the pavement onto the South Circular Road and having not gone to a police station, Sarah Everard must have realised her fate. Um, And we all know that Sarah Everard's murder led to a massive outcry over women's safety on the streets and the full details of the crime are going to only increase that anger and revulsion, I think, because, of course, this was also the week that a 36-year-old man appeared in a British court after being charged with the murder of Sabina Nessa, a schoolteacher who was killed in a park near her home recently in southeast London on her way to meet a friend in the pub a five-minute walk away. And in court this week, Sarah Everard's mother, Susan, told the court she remained tormented at the thought of what her 33-year-old daughter endured. And I just want to read you her full statement. It's quite long and devastating. But I think it's really important because the Sarah Everard news broke and when there was all that social media, there was, of course, some people who were trying to minimise it. There was a lot of the hashtag not all men. There was a lot of erroneous stuff about male violence against women. Um, But I think Sarah Everard's mother's words need to be heard loud and clear and as widely as possible. And this is Susan, her mother's statement. Sarah is gone and I am broken hearted. She was my precious little girl, our youngest child. The feeling of loss is so great it is visceral. And with the sorrow come waves of panic at not being able to see her again. I can never talk to her, never hold her again and never more be part of her life. We have kept her dressing gown. It still smells of her and I hug that instead of her. Sarah died in horrendous circumstances. I am tormented at the thought of what she endured. I play it out in my mind. I go through the terrible sequence of events. I wonder when she realised she was in mortal danger. I wonder what her murderer said to her when he strangled her. For how long was she conscious, knowing she would die? It is torture to think of it. Sarah was handcuffed, unable to defend herself, and there was no one to rescue her. She spent her last hours on this earth with the very worst of humanity. She lost her life because Wayne Cousins wanted to satisfy his perverted desires. It is a ridiculous reason. It is nonsensical. How could he value a human life so cheaply? I cannot comprehend it. I am incandescent with rage at the thought of it. He treated my daughter as if she was nothing and disposed of her as if she was rubbish. If Sarah had died because of an illness, she would have been cared for. 
We could have looked after her and been with her. If she had died because of an accident, people would have tried to help. There would have been kindness. But there is no comfort to be had. There is no consoling thought in the way Sarah died. In her last hours, she was faced with brutality and terror, alone with someone intent on doing her harm. The thought of it is unbearable. I am haunted by the horror of it. When Sarah went missing, we suffered days of agony, not knowing where she was or what had happened to her. Then, when Sarah's burnt remains were found, we spent two terrible days waiting for tests to show how she had died, fearing she had been set alight before she was dead. The thought was appalling. Burning her body was the final insult. It meant we could never again see her sweet face and never say goodbye. Our lives will never be the same. We should be a family of five, but now we are four. Her death leaves a yawning chasm in our lives that cannot be filled. I yearn for her. I remember all the lovely things about her. She was caring. She was funny. She was clever. But she was good at practical things too. She was a beautiful dancer. She was a wonderful daughter. She was always there to listen, to advise or simply to share with the minutiae of the day. And she was also a strongly principled young woman who knew right from wrong and who lived by those values. She was a good person. She had purpose to her life. My outlook on life has changed since Sarah died. I am more cautious. I worry more about our other children. I crave the familiarity and security of home The wider world has lost its appeal. It is too painful to contemplate a future without Sarah, so I just live in the here and now. I think of Sarah all the time, but the mornings and evenings are particularly painful. In the morning, I wake up to the awful reality that Sarah is gone. In the evenings, at the time she was abducted, I let out a silent scream Don't get in the car, Sarah. Don't believe him. Run. I am repulsed by the thought of Wayne Cousins and what he did to Sarah. I am outraged that he masqueraded as a policeman in order to get what he wanted. Sarah wanted to get married and have children. Now all of that is gone. He took her life and stole her future and we will never have the joy of sharing that future with her. Each day dawns and I think Sarah should be here leading her life and embracing new experiences she had so many years ahead of her. I don't know how anyone could be so cruel as to take my daughter's life. What I do know is that Sarah will never be forgotten and is remembered with boundless love. I cling on to memories of Sarah. I hold them tight to keep them safe. The other night, I dreamt that Sarah appeared at home. In my dream, I held her and could feel her physically. Jeremy was there. We were comforting her, saying, It's all right, Sarah. It's all right. I would give anything to hold her once more. I hope I dream that dream again.
And those are the words of Sarah Everard's mother, Susan. And she's talking about Jeremy, her husband and Sarah's father in that piece too. And I think so many of us are thinking about that family and about everyone affected by male violence against women, which, as I said recently on the podcast, is a pandemic that doesn't seem to get um, as much attention as it probably should. And there are so many people affected by male violence against women. And it's, I think, uh, Sarah Everett's mother's words there are just very important. Now, some other news this week, some better news is that celebrities, fans and Britney Spears herself took to social media this week to celebrate a judge's ruling that effective immediately, Jamie Spears, the father of the pop star, was going to be suspended as his daughter's conservator, a position he held for 13 years. I'm on cloud nine right now, wrote Britney on Instagram with videos of herself piloting a small aeroplane for the first time. Certified public accountant John Zabel, chosen by Britney's legal team, will serve as a temporary conservator for 30 to 45 days, after which her attorney has requested the termination of the conservatorship in its entirety. Uh, So the fate of the conservatorship will be determined on November 12th. And in the past week, three new documentaries have been released that portray Jamie Spears, Britney's father, as self-serving and domineering. And they've alleged that his security team were planting recording devices in his daughter's bedroom. Outside the Stanley Moss Courthouse in downtown Los Angeles, a horde of fans with free Britney signs cheered, embraced and even sang her hit song Toxic on the streets. Online, a number of celebrities across the entertainment industry voiced their support and Britney's fiancé, Sam Asghari, shared a celebratory post on Instagram within minutes of the verdict, followed by a photograph of Britney's hand holding a pink rose. Free Britney, congratulations, he wrote. And I love this. Divas of all gen- Generations were delighted with Judge Brenda K. Penny's decision. Congratulations, Brittany, wrote Dionne Warwick on Twitter. Enjoy your life. I've talked and prayed about this for four years, tweeted. Sure, I'm more than thrilled for her. Delighted for Brittany and Brittany fans. And uh, I wanted to bring you that because we devoted a whole episode to Brittany's predicament a while back. And it's nice that there's something of a happy ending there after everything she's been through. Now, for today's episode, we're going to be looking at an uncomfortable truth that we're not going to achieve equality for women without radical changes to contemporary capitalism. From the gendered threat of robot labour to the lack of women in economics itself, Vicky Price has been looking at this issue. She's Chief Economics Advisor at the Centre for Economics and Business Research and a former joint head of the UK Government Economic Service. So a big reputation there. She was also Director General for Economics at the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills. Her previous books include Greekonomics, Prisonomics and It's the Economy Stupid. But what she's discussing on this episode with Cathy Sheridan is her new book, Women versus Capitalism. And it is giving us all a lot to think about. Here they are, Women's Podcast co-host Cathy Sheridan with Vicky Price. Vicky, the title of the book is Women and Capitalism, Why We Can't Have It All in a Free Market Economy, which could be mistaken for a communist manifesto. So I think we need to establish where you're coming from. Well, that's true. I think I had a bit of a trouble with the title. I have to admit that at the very beginning, I was thinking of calling it Don't Bake, um, which uh, <laughs> my uh, publisher thought that perhaps... Um, other audiences out of the UK wouldn't quite understand it, uh, given the obsession we all had with Bake Off. 
Um, but I really did think that uh, we needed to look at why exactly women are just not making it in this society. And there is no doubt in my mind that the way the system works, the market system works, just isn't clearing uh, the labour market in such a way to uh, secure the best use of resources. And, and women suffer from it because there are loads and loads of market failures out there that prevent them from doing the things they would otherwise do. And therefore, we lose out in terms of productivity and growth. So it wasn't an anti-capitalism uh, view, um, although I do uh, talk quite a bit about what was happening in former Eastern Europe and also China in terms of the way in which the distinction between men and women were uh, sort of eliminated to a considerable extent in the sense that there wasn't huge belief in families and therefore women were encouraged to go out and work. Uh, and they did rise to quite senior positions. Certainly when I worked in Eastern Europe, I found quite a lot of them, um, you know, having quite, uh, quite good posts and roles. And uh, pretty soon after the wall came down, quite a lot of that, in fact, disappeared. It's taken them some time to get back to something resembling a little bit more like equality that we see, um, in the West even, because they went seriously backward for a while. Getting back to where you personally are coming from here, because initially anybody who doesn't know anything about you would think, well, here's Vicky and she's coming in as the Yanis Varoufakis here and she really doesn't, she's, she's always been a bit of a socialist. In fact, your background is not that at all. Tell us a bit about, about your own professional and personal background. Well, I'm an economist and I worked in the banking sector, in the energy sector, in consultancy. I was a partner in a big accounting firm and then I worked for the government. So I don't think you could uh, suggest that I came to this with a sort of socialist view in mind, but I came to this from a purely economic and rational view in mind, uh, which basically said that we're losing a huge resource from the economy. And what we need to do is fix it. And the truth is there are loads and loads of obstacles. When I was working for the government myself, uh, what we always worked on was you know, trying to identify whether market failures existed so that there could be government intervention. It could be in terms of regulation or it could be in terms of just encouraging change to take place. And in the area of women, those obstacles have only really been slowly removed by government intervention, government legislation. But I certainly come from a background of believing in entrepreneurship and in markets working. You know, I come from a family that uh, you know, was very much into uh, business in Greece and I left and came and studied at the LSE, uh, even though uh, the LSE is perceived to be the centre of sort of socialist economics. By the time I got there, it was pretty right wing, I have to say. So it's not at all um, you know, influenced by any sort of political views. It's completely influenced by what actually works and makes the economy work. And when I was working for the government, we did, I think, the first study of looking at what the implication of having more women entrepreneurs would be for the economy. And we compared what um, the US is achieving in that area and saw that, in fact, we could have billions, if not hundreds of billions, just like Alison Rose at the RBS has calculated, if we increase the ability of women to raise funds and start their own businesses and actually run firms a lot more than we've got at present if we were to even equalise in terms of percentages with the US. Vicky, your own background, though, you came to England from Greece when you were 17 and you somehow worked your way. You went to the LSE, you got a degree. Just tell us a bit about that, because that can't have been easy. Or, or was it? Did it come naturally? 
I always wanted to leave the country, uh, strangely enough, because quite a lot of Greeks, young Greeks are educated in lots of different languages. And the idea is uh, perhaps to go and you know try your, your luck abroad, uh, come back, of course, at some point. In my case, I didn't go back. I was at the German School of Athens. In fact, I was destined to go and study in Germany. And then my parents made the mistake one summer of sending me to England, where they said the new language is now, of course, English. And I spent actually all my time following some French students who were there, girls from school, uh, who spent the one month in Reading, which is where I went. And in fact, we didn't spend any time in Reading. We would take the train, go to Paddington, down to the King's Road and walk up and down, uh, you know, Chelsea and looking around saying, uh, this is the place I want to come to. So uh, I rapidly um, improved my English and also started doing GCSEs or, or O-levels as they were called at the time, and A-levels, and and then came to the UK at 17. The interesting thing, of course, was that right then we still had the colonels in power. My family hadn't done very well under the colonels, and basically I was penniless. So I managed to get myself a job as a room service telephonist and did that for quite a few months, and that kept me going, and then went to the LSE the year later. And Vicky, it's important also to put you in context in terms of that era. You know, we're about the same age, I think. Are you around 60, 68, 69 now? Thereabouts, absolutely. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about an era where men were still very much in charge, and especially in the area you chose to specialise in, which is finance, uh, economics, that sort of thing. You pursued a stellar career, but what was that like? We're talking about the situation now, which is 50 years later, believe it or not. So what was it like back then to be moving into those professions? I think I was very lucky, I have to say. Every woman you probably ask, you know, how did she do it? She'd say a bit of luck actually helped. And, and what helped hugely for me was having male um, uh, bosses who couldn't really see why a woman couldn't do just as well as, as men. And of course, those were the days in the 70s when there were hardly any women in the city. And I think I was one of very few first women economists to be hired in a bank. And my boss at the time was a New Zealander who uh, was very open-minded about all this and he pushed me forward. But I do remember there was one time and he rang the Bank of England because we were having some regular meetings at the time um, because money supply was being controlled quite carefully. Um, and uh, he couldn't go and asked if uh, he could send a replacement and I could hear him from his office saying, but it's actually a, a girl, a woman. Is that okay? <laughs> and, and it was extraordinary. But um, a lot later... Um, in forward almost whatever, 20 years, a bit less, there were still problems. When I was uh, working and expecting, I think, child number five at the time, um, the my other partners in a firm I worked with were a little bit concerned in terms of putting me in front of clients, particularly financial service clients, with a big belly. And I did find that a bit peculiar, uh, but they warmed to the idea pretty quickly after that. One had to be Determined, I think, uh, probably is the word. Determined hardly describes it. I think, I, did I read somewhere that you took three days off with your last child, Vicky? <laughs> that sounds like suffering. Oh, it was a peculiar environment. I think I was due to uh, make a big presentation on a job that I was supposed to be uh, in charge of um, with the government. I was still working for uh, an accounting consulting firm. Um, I was a partner there. Uh, and Unfortunately, the day we were due to present was also the day I was due to 
have another child. And uh, and it was decided that we would sort of change the the team a little bit so that if indeed I were to produce that day, I wouldn't go. But uh, so I, I did produce that day and I didn't go. Uh, but they promised that the entire team, including me, who had done all the preliminary work, would be there by Friday. So it was Tuesday. So uh, on Friday, I got up, um, managed to find something I could fit into, got into a taxi and went straight to was other, the DTI, as it was then called, or the Treasury, where we were starting the job. Um, and uh, the interesting thing was that I got into the car and then immediately switched over to thinking about work. So uh, you can do it uh, quickly, but I have to admit that I came back and then collapsed. Um, after that. Yeah, I bet you did. Yeah, because what you say in, in the book, Vicky, quite early in the book, I've been successful, but I've found that for just about everything a woman achieved, she has to work twice as hard as, than a man does. Now, we know that, but it's interesting to hear you say that, who have been the chief economist at what became or the Royal Bank of Scotland, KPMG, the first female master of the Worshipful Company of Management Consultants, you know, I noticed reading some of your some of your papers that you, you you were looking for an EU stimulus package way back and for the ECB to buy bonds before anybody else was talking about it, as far as I can see. So you're no small mind in terms of pushing the women's cause, uh, but you're still saying you had to work twice as hard. Um, so has that left a mark on you, Vicky, or is that, have you sort of got over that and you now just think there are practical solutions to all of this? It's not the question of getting over that. Uh, the important thing is that nothing has really changed, and that's my concern, the reason why I wrote the book. Um, women still have to work quite hard, and of course they get terribly disheartened when uh, they see all these obstacles up there. They're, they're not just... Uh, you know, usual ones such as, you know, general sort of sexism. But there, there is an inbuilt sort of bias in systems where uh, people just tend to hire others who look like them, sound like them, and, and so on. And what is, I think, interesting is that quite a lot of younger women who all think that perhaps things have been sorted out, then start work and within, you know, a very short period of time realise that there are still these obstacles there. And I found it fascinating, and I think I'll probably refer to that in the book, uh, that a number of business schools have written an open letter, which I think was published in, I can't remember if it was the Times or somewhere, saying that, in fact, what they need to introduce is lessons for women about what those obstacles are going to be that they're going to face because they need to be prepared for them. So they just don't give up, which is what tends to happen quite a lot, unfortunately, at the moment. It's realised that this flexibility that you'd like to have for having having children uh, isn't there, that uh, you're considered to be a burden. This is what the surveys suggest still, that you're still going to be asked in HR interviews how you're going to be uh, looking after your children, if you have any or if you already have some. What will you do if there is another and what arrangements you've got? They never ask a man that. I'm not suggesting all of them do, all firms do, but surveys suggest that quite a substantial percentage of HR interviews are still raising that issue. So, Vicky, what you're saying basically is that, that feminism is not compatible with capitalism, 
that women's economic empowerment is critical to market efficiency. This is, I think, where your where your book is so useful. You're talking, you're you're applying economic theory to all of this. Um, that we need government intervention because it's a big market failure. You also say that social estates did better for women, which I think is very interesting. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. Well, they did um, better in terms of not necessarily discriminating, although the very, very top position still went to men and not discriminating in the sort of general type of work between men and women. Everyone was encouraged to work. Families were not considered to be uh, what one should be focusing on. So individualism was out, if you like. Although uh, quite a lot of the socialist regimes and communist regimes were went sort of in and out of those phases. So it wasn't sort of consistent. But what it did do is it sort of made it more equal across, but of course at the expense of families up to a point. But also, of course, we know that uh, overall women still had to do all the heavy lifting, if you like, in terms of uh, home and and looking after um, the family overall, but also, you know, queue for food and for any essentials that they needed. So I'm not suggesting that this is what we should emulate at all. Uh, but what one should emulate is is ensure that the opportunities are there uh, for everyone. And uh, I mean, it is interesting when you look at some of those market failures that you uh, you mentioned. Uh, there are numerous still, including concerns about you know transparency. If you don't know what other people are earning, um, or even what the potential is for you in terms of a career, because you just don't get given that information at school, then you can't make the right choices. Uh, and that transparency uh, failure, if you like, is is a major market failure. You can't make proper decisions on how you run a country, how you run a business uh, and how you run your life if you don't have all the information that is required for you to make the best decision. So uh, this is why I think, again, where government intervention has helped, but it has also shocked quite a lot of people, is in forcing firms to, big firms in particular, to publish pay um, gaps um, that they have in their organisation. So those pay reviews, which now have now become a legal requirement, even though during the pandemic, unfortunately, we went backwards and they were abandoned for a bit. They're now being reinstated. But there's very little enforcement with, for firms when they publish those figures and they still show huge discrepancies because quite a lot of women have simply not made it to the top. And they're allowed to just carry on, except, of course, for peer pressure, possibly, and maybe investment pressure, which is increasing now. Now, Vicky, we'll get to solutions, which is a huge part of the book. And to me, the most enlightening part of it, really, because that's what we're looking for is solutions. But before we get to there, let's just talk about how things seem to a lot of people. I mean, you yourself refer to Christine Lagarde, Ursula von der Leyen, Angela Merkel, women who are clearly at the top of their game, and a sense that lots and lots of women are coming through the pipeline and making it big. So what, what is wrong then further down the line? What is happening? Are, are women not in the pipeline? Are companies not? Is that just enough that we have a few figureheads there and we should just suck it up now? Uh, it's not enough at all. Um, we have a few and we keep uh, referring to those few, forgetting how many more men we referred to on a daily basis anyway. So they do stand out, make one feel comfortable. I mean, soon we're going to lose Merkel in Germany. And so uh, in terms of sort of powerful nations being led by women, we're not really going to have uh, very many. Um, so that is a problem. But yes, of course, we have Lagarde 
at the ECB and we have Van der Leyen at the EU Commission. Uh, but we've seen that even in their case, they are still faced with um, sort of sexism being demonstrated in the way people behave. So we have the famous occasion of Van der Leyen in a meeting with Erdogan uh, of Turkey finding herself uh, without a chair um, uh, and then complaining bitterly in a big speech, actually, in Parliament, which I listened to. Uh, and we still know that the women at the top always worry about being found out, if you like, uh, and doing the homework a lot, lot more than than others. What we hear is that uh, both Merkel and Lagarde have exchanged information on how hard they work before they make a big speech just to make sure that they get it all right, whereas the men feel they can sort of uh, do it without too much preparation and they'll get away with it, really. So, so women still have to work very hard at the top. But further down, the pipeline just isn't there. And my view has always been that we should have quotas. When, when uh, Mervyn Davies uh, did the sort of first um, sort of uh, consultation, if you like, with quite a lot of HR people and also um, all these search firms, uh, it was decided that there should be targets for boards in terms of women's representation. I was at the government at the time and or working for the government and was very um, in, in favour of having quotas instead because I thought that those would work a lot better. Uh, and of course, what has happened is that we've populated the boardrooms with women non-executive directors who, of course, hold quite a lot of other positions. And the impact, I always thought, on um, the organisation just isn't filtering down to the workforce in the sense of real changes happening because the board dictates them, if you like. So the women may add something to the discussions at the top, but what you really needed, and this is what I argued, is quotas not so much for boards because it hardly matters. You needed quotas for women further down, particularly for executive directors who are on boards and also for senior directors in organisations. And in order to get to that, they would need to build a pipeline. So you don't want to lose the talent you've got. You've invested hugely already. There's a good business case for keeping uh, women on. Uh, what it means is that you need to ensure that uh, through that walk up the pipeline, uh, there aren't those obstacles, those market failures there, which are exemplified in the way you run your organisation, but they are removed. And for me, the interesting thing is that if that is the case and you manage to keep the women with greater flexibility or you know, ensuring also, I'm a great believer in free childcare, as free childcare as possible, then that will also benefit the men. And we've seen that actually, interestingly enough, in the pandemic. I think the pandemic has reinforced that, that you can work more flexibly, you can be productive working from home, and men have embraced that in a big way. So uh, we are at a point now where we can do all these things with some pressure in terms of what needs to be achieved at the senior positions too. There is always a danger that... Uh, if you don't see someone and they work from home, uh, then they just don't get the training and they don't get promoted and women may indeed get forgotten in the process. But there is a golden opportunity to really change the system quite substantially. And quotas for me are an absolute must, but not for boards, but for executive positions at the top. Right. And before that point, Vicky, we're going to talk about bias because you give a lot of space to bias. What constitutes women's work? quote unquote, 
a lot of the book is devoted to evidence of bias in various sectors, the pay gap, um, which is the worst in the finance sector, apparently, and a lack of senior women, uh, which is a self-perpetuating cycle of, of the pay gap. But that sense of being stuck in those segregated sectors, Vicky, what is the solution to that? Well, it's interesting because, of course, we're talking about executive positions, but we mustn't forget that the real problem is further down in terms of pay. Women tend to get stuck in low pay areas. They don't move out of those low pay areas as fast as the men do. In fact, quite often through history, low pay areas which have attracted women in then become women uh, ghettoed, if you like, uh, because the men just move out and go somewhere else into areas that pay more. So women find it more difficult to exit those low pay sectors because they want that flexibility. Um, and that is a serious problem because, of course, they are the ones, particularly when we have downturns in the economy, who end up with the greater risk of, of getting into poverty and, of course, you know, children depending on them and so on. And we've seen the number of children in poor families now increasing quite significantly. And that's that's a concern. So uh, we, we must not just think that this is just, uh, you know, a white collar type um, problem that permeates through the, the entire society. So we need to absolutely look at, at that aspect. And what tends to happen, of course, is that even education and, and sort of the potentials that might exist play a part in this and don't raise the sights, don't encourage women to think of themselves in a different way or to get into positions that they can uh, perhaps use to improve prosperity more generally for themselves and for everyone else. And that needs to be addressed. And we've seen that also in the caring sector uh, with this pandemic, how obvious that has been. Um, you know, women have tended to be the ones who have worked in the most precarious areas through this pandemic. And uh, what they've been faced with, in fact, coming out of it is, uh, you know, pay freezes or very, very little increases in their um, in the way in which they recompense. So uh, I think there is an, a greater issue of, of fairness there too, but also it means that women are just not used to the full potential. And that for me is really, really bad for the economy. The new Safe Ireland Survivor Fund in partnership with Airbnb enables Safe Ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide focused actions for children. You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. So let's talk about solutions, Vicky. You mentioned quotas. For example, there are certain questions you put and that you answer, which are very interesting. Why don't women employ themselves is one of the questions, which is actually I see happening in, in, in the world of entertainment, for example. A lot of those fantastically successful TV series um, are now being produced by the actors, by female actors themselves. So women are doing it for themselves in some areas. But why aren't more women employing themselves? First of all, of course, you have to start a business or uh, and you have to attract the capital. It's very rare that this happens. And that's exactly what's been going on. Unfortunately, as we've seen in all the surveys and the Alison Rose review that 
I mentioned is is uh, is an issue. It has has highlighted that as an issue too. Uh, that a very small percentage of funding that exists goes to uh, women-led organisations. So uh, that's the one problem. Uh, the interesting thing is that if it does, then those organisations prove in general to be more successful than the others. But of course, that may be because they had to go through immense scrutiny to even get there. So it's one of the reasons. But the other one that we need to bear in mind, I mean, there's always the the talk of the queen bee and how when women get to the top, they don't really want anyone else there because I certainly don't want to discriminate in favour of any women. And they think they got there because they are very good themselves uh, through merit. Uh, but what we actually find is that, yes, there are some queen bees, but overall women tend to uh, hire more women. So if you happen to have a woman at the top, you may get more women, in fact, employed further down. So it works a little bit like with the men. If you have the men there that employ more men and uh, who look like them. So the women also employ more women. Uh, so we mustn't assume that having women at the top um, or in one senior position means that nobody else can can then benefit from that actually does permeate through uh, the organization. So that's why we need women in senior inverted commas position at all levels. So we we'll make decisions, if you like, and hiring decisions in particular, because that will improve the lot of everyone else coming up. Is there a kind of a, a, an unfortunate circle there, though, Vicky, where women are perceived to be less adventurous, I mean, which in some cases can be to their advantage and to the world's advantage. But in other cases, perhaps they just haven't the confidence to just go forward and, and be sort of as, maybe as reckless as men are, <laughs> reckless in a good way sometimes. Well, yes. And I think, uh, however, that, that gets uh, also amplified by the fact that they don't see other women higher up. So they assume, therefore, what you started asking me at the very beginning, do they need to work twice, three times as hard to get there? Uh, or is there something wrong with them? Um, and therefore, they don't try. And that's, you know, both things could work because obviously one has other caring responsibilities, wants to work more flexibly or whatever. And one can see that getting to the top might require all sorts of, you know, extra things that need to be done, which, of course, shouldn't. Um, I mean, fortunately, again, I think with... With COVID, we've seen that presenteeism, which is basically you've got to be in the office early in the morning and uh, and be seen to be there, um, may no longer be the necessary way in which you get on. And I do remember, actually, when I was working for an oil company, uh, that everyone was getting in very, very early. And I would walk in around 9.30 and, and my boss called me in and said, well, it's all going really well, um, but, you know, it's been noticed that you come in rather late. Can you not perhaps, you know, start coming in a little bit earlier like everybody else? And I said, I have to take my children to school in the morning first thing. So I can't. But, you know, I stay in until 10 or 11 at night because I don't have a problem on, you know, when they get back. Someone is doing that job for me. Um, and uh, and it all seems to be working fine. And, and my boss hadn't realized, which is extraordinary because, of course, it was an American firm and he was actually Canadian. They hadn't asked me anything about children. Uh, was so impressed that I had children and also so shocked that I, you know, he had asked me that oh, and, and offended me, or he thought he offended me. Uh, that all went swimmingly, uh, you know, after that. It was really, you know, a very good relationship. We had already one and, and he was very apologetic. So I carried on coming in at 9.30 in the morning, which was brilliant. 
The other thing about today, but that this current era, Vicky, is we're in the Me Too era. And I had a conversation with a youngish entrepreneur a few weeks ago, which actually quite shocked me. He told me straight out that he wouldn't employ women of a certain age because they'll just go off and get pregnant. And also he felt slightly unsafe now around women and men with a large staff. Is that coming up in evidence at all? Or was that just him being a scaredy cat? It's certainly coming up in evidence. Uh, we see quite, in fact, there have been some data that came out suggesting that there have been tens of thousands of, of, of women who are pregnant and, in fact, lose their jobs as a result. Uh, and that's not really reported. Uh, but survey evidence suggests that that is indeed the case. And indeed, there was a, a, a survey also done which uh, showed that, interestingly, there is resentment in organisations if uh, a woman just goes off and has her second baby in an organisation, because that's considered to be overburdening them. Uh, and that's quite interesting as well and very worrying. But I, I think I sensed it when I was growing up, if you like, through the system. And I think, if I remember correctly, I had each of my five children in a different environment, in a different firm. Uh, because indeed, you know, if you become a sort of child producing machine constantly, I, I felt that people would resent it. Uh, and the survey evidence suggests that they still do. Uh, they don't resent it if a man, um, and it has lots of children. But of course, what we need to do and what is happening in quite a lot of countries which are achieving better equality than we are is this sharing of uh, parental leave so that that distinction no longer work so that women are unstigmatized by it. Yeah, give me an example of that, Vicky, of where parental leave is shared, where it's mandatory to share it. In Scandinavian countries, uh, and also it's becoming increasingly the case now in Europe where they're legislating for this. So uh, what, of course, uh, happens here is that uh, a man can have uh, a couple of weeks off, but now, uh, and, and they can take uh, paternity leave and take over the woman. But the way the, the system works in terms of pay, a uh, woman, woman gets maternity pay for a number of months, which is, you know, pretty close to what they were earning before. But the man just gets the statutory maternity pay that the government pays, which, as we know, once you move from what you're entitled to from your company to the statutory maternity pay, the drop in your salary is immense. So it doesn't make sense economically for any man who generally earns more than uh, than the, the, the person he's with to, to do that because the overall income of the family drops sharply. Now, we've talked about, about quotas and, and, and all the rest, Vicky, but what should organisations do? There is this thing, unconscious bias, uh, which some people don't believe exists, but it certainly does. And your book provides sterling evidence of this. But what should organisations do to counter it? What we know is that quite a lot of organisations uh, are having courses on unconscious bias. Um, but uh, there has been evidence to suggest that it doesn't really uh, do anything very much, uh, and people sort of tick the boxes that they've been to those courses. Uh, what you need is the organisation at the top to be absolutely determined to achieve that ratio that I was talking about, ensure that women stay. And if that is the case, then uh, and it is then filtering through everywhere in every HR decision, in every uh, which I don't mean discriminating in favour of women, but not discriminating against them. 
then the that unconscious bias eventually goes away. But it is quite interesting that there is still something in society which is quite difficult to break down, and other people have written whole books on it, which suggests that you know when you meet a woman and they say something about science or about anything else, even probably about economics, you, you assume that they know less than the men, that they're less expert somehow. And that is, of course, because you've had all these experts in the past who are men. Uh, we now know, of course, that behind loads of experts or even painters, composers and so on, there was always a woman there somewhere. And in fact, in some cases, they were even better than the men, but they just didn't come through. Um, but we just need to see many, many more of those examples there for that to change. And it does take a lot of time, I'm afraid. And that is why one needs to force it uh, from the top. Uh, you won't get that bias disappearing overnight, but you can speed up the process. One of the things that alarmed me, uh, one of the sections in the book that it alarmed me a little bit because I'm such an ignoramus about artificial intelligence, Vicky, and robots, is what the effect that will have on women who you say are most at risk because they're in those occupations that will be first hit by AI. Just tell us a little bit about that. Indeed. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, of course, we've been waiting for sort of technology to reduce uh, the number of jobs that are out there. And, and of course, new ones are created at, at various stages. But what we're seeing increasingly is that uh, AI and actually the better use of information technology uh, robots and so on has meant that quite a lot of the routine jobs that were out there, women were doing a lot of those routine jobs are disappearing. So uh, it's not just a pandemic issue. We lost 200,000 retail jobs in the last year, but we were losing about 170,000 retail jobs for some time a year. Uh, and a lot of those were done by women. And the jobs they would be going to after that would be lower paid jobs rather than higher paid jobs. Um, as I said, it's a difficult for women with not very high skills to then move up and um, and have have careers in better paying uh, areas. So that's a big, big issue. And that's what worries me about the future. And that's why I also worried about the poverty trap, that the women will be more likely because they are in this low pay occupations, many of which may indeed disappear. Yes, we're going to need more carers. Uh, but at present, I think what carers are getting paid is less than what people are getting paid retail uh, jobs. And of course, they're hard, hard jobs to have. And we need to recognize that. So something needs to give. But overall, what one needs is higher skills. And again, if you look at what's been happening during the pandemic, the jobs during the recession that we had that were most at risk were the low skill ones. The high skill ones were kept uh, you know, in greater percentages. And if you look also at who was able to work from home, and that has affected women too, uh, it is the higher paid one. The higher you got paid, the more likely you were to have uh, the ability to work from home because the more likely you were to have tasks that you were doing every day that you could do from home. And this is exactly what happened. So it was the lower end where loads of jobs disappeared. And many of them have still not come back. Yes. And of course, Vicky, it's no harm to say that you say you refer repeatedly to short termism and free market capitalism and how we measure productivity and various other things like that. But Vicky, before you go, I can, because it's the women's podcast, I can't not ask you about a terrible period in your life about which you wrote a book, which didn't surprise me because you're an extraordinary woman. 
Uh, the book was called Prisonomics and it came from the heart and the spirit and your body because you were imprisoned for a while. Indeed, absolutely. And uh, the, I was I was in prison for two months. And the interesting thing about it is, of course, that it sort of opened my eyes to uh, particularly what it all meant for women, women with children. And it, in a way, it reinforced my view that, that we needed to look at what happens in terms of skills, employment. Again, if you look at the who of the women population tends to go to prison, there's some exceptions, like myself, they tend to be women with lower skills, whose uh, employment uh, sort of history hasn't been particularly good. They're quite likely to have been sort of unemployed before, but also subject to abuse and uh, and discrimination anyway for some time. And um, I wrote this book to basically, again, show that the economics doesn't work. There are many different ways in which you can handle uh, what is going on in society a lot more cheaply and a lot more effectively. And uh, in my view, pr prison for the vast majority of people doesn't work and is in fact detrimental, uh, economically as well as socially. Uh, that's why I wrote the book at the end uh, of the period there. Um, but of course, I have uh, continued to work in that area. I'm trustee of women in prison. I am patron of Working Chance, which is charity that uh, finds quality jobs for women ex-offenders. And I think it's, they're both, of course, in terms of assisting women prisoners, but more generally, uh, very good causes. And Vicky, for people who don't know, who may, be, who may be rather shocked to hear that you serve time, will you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Uh, yes, uh, it was, uh, the, the actual conviction was for perverting the course of justice because uh, I allowed my uh, ex-husband's speeding points to come onto my license. Mm. And he served eight or nine weeks and you served the same amount of time. And Vicky, yes. I thought your, your defence was quite interesting, I think was in the basis of marital coercion. So, uh, I mean, the jury uh, in the end decided uh, that I was guilty and uh, I have uh, done it. I've never complained about that uh, and uh, did my term and uh, gave something back in terms of the book and also being very involved in the charity area uh, for women in prison in particular. Vicky, did it affect your career? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the job that I was doing before, I wasn't doing it any longer. But uh, the good thing is that uh, people came back very quickly. And I have had a very, very busy time ever since, uh, working for a very good firm and also doing quite a lot of academic stuff, lots of visiting professorships and sitting on quite a lot of organisations now, uh, even going back, working, you know, sitting on a committee for the department I used to work for before, for a while, uh, while it was still going. Uh, so, yes, it's uh, it's obviously uh, had an impact. There's no doubt about that. But uh, as I've been arguing, I think one has to be resilient. And uh, if one gives something back, one accepts that that was a mistake and uh, one carries on. Well, Vicky Price, it's been a pleasure to interview you. Congratulations on the book. It's, it's, a, it's a very enlightening read, as I say, to apply evidence to what we've always believed to be true, but weren't able to put a, put a shape on it, is always a very, very useful thing to do. So thank you so much for coming to the Women's Podcast. Thank you very much. That was Vicky Price there talking to Cathy Sheridan. 
And as I said, lots to think about. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at IT Women's Podcast. We're on email to thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.